millions of people have lost weight with personalized plans from Noom, like Evan, who can't stand salads and still lost 50 pounds. Salads generally for most people are the easy button, right? For me, that wasn't an option. I never really was a salad guy. That's just not who I am. But Noom worked for me. Get your personalized plan today at Noom.com. Real Noom user compensated to provide their story. In four weeks, the typical Noom user can expect to lose one to two pounds per week. Individual results may vary. Hiring for your small business? If you're not looking for professionals on LinkedIn, you're looking in the wrong place. That's like looking for your car keys in a fish tank. LinkedIn helps you hire professionals you can't find anywhere else, even those who aren't actively searching for a new job but might be open to the perfect role. In a given month, over 70% of LinkedIn users don't even visit other leading job sites. So start looking in the right place. With LinkedIn, you can hire professionals like a professional. Post your free job on linkedin.com slash people today. Hi there and welcome again to the Explaining History podcast and today I'm going to talk a bit about the impact of mass democracy on Britain between the wars. Um, today we're looking at the brilliant book uh, Into Battle, uh, Britain's War by Daniel Todman which is Britain 1937 to uh, 41 and uh, in the first chapters of the book um, Todman sets out the kind of the um, <coughs> panoramic picture of a country in transition um, and today we're going to look about um, how democracy uh, affected the um, hierarchical ideas of class deference and respectability and how in many cases those concepts held firm that they didn't simply uh, wither away uh, following the representation of the people act 1918. So Daniel Todman writes the UK of the 1930s was a distinctly modern place in ways that marked it out from both its past and its future. It was also a more democratic place than it had been a generation before. Its people less obedient, less jingoistic and less religious than their forebears. Observed from the 21st century, on the other hand, it was strikingly hierarchical, Christian, patriotic and dutiful. Wealth and property were very unevenly divided across society, but, in striking contrast to the situation in the UK of the 2010s, the level of inequality was decreasing. <clears throat> so, uh, one of the kind of the key sort of fantasies that Britain seems to have about itself is about it being, you know, the, the oldest democracy. Well, not really. It is one of the younger ones. Um, it had... Uh, the uh, universal um, suffrage um, was finally achieved in 1928. Um, in 1918, uh, all men had the vote and some women. Um, universal adult suffrage happened by uh, 1928. Um, in 1910, which was the last general election before the war, 7.7 million people cast the vote. 19 years later, that number had increased to 29 million. So that shows you how many people were not franchised by the, um, the, the eve of the, of the First World War. 
Um, in some ways, this sort of um, mass democratisation um, led to hopes of um, social democracy, of the resources of society being shared in a, a democratic manner. There was far more likelihood of this uh, in the, the mid-1930s, the mid-1920s, I beg your pardon. Um, and there was really one factor above all that made um, social welfare and the redistribution of wealth uh, more of a burning issue for Britain's ruling classes, and that was the Russian Revolution and the frightening example that Russia had set to the rest of the world about what happens to uh, fundamentally um, uh, unequal and unreformable societies. Um, this was the spectre that um, the shadow really that Russia cast. Now, by 1920, there was virtually no chance of an expansion of Russian um, power or of further revolutions uh, across Europe. Uh, the threat had really uh, receded in 1918-1919, but it didn't stop uh, Western democratic politicians, particularly in Britain, feeling anxious about these sorts of things. There had been various outbreaks uh, of violence in 1919 throughout the empire uh, and at home. Uh, and obviously Ireland uh, had had its own revolution from 1916 uh, onwards. And large numbers of demobilised servicemen returning home, having often bitter memories of class rule and of um, their war experience and fighting in the trenches. Um, um, had um, a, a huge kind of um, distorting factor uh, upon politics, not only with um, pressures towards more progressive politics, but also um, uh, placing um, pressures upon um, the ruling classes that uh, things might possibly go in a, a far more violent direction. Um, and you also have, in this period of time, the emergence of the Labour Party. Um, unemployment in the post-war slump um, saw union power eroded, but um, fears of wage cuts when Britain returned to the, the gold standard um, after the First World War um, led to obviously the great sort of spasm of, of kind of industrial unrest, the general strike. Um, I've done things on the, the general strike previously, which I cover in greater depth than I, I will now. But um, the, the general strike really emerged from a series of earlier uh, coal strikes. Uh, and the demand of the coal miners in uh, South Wales and the north of England for uh, better pay and treatment and the uh, constant threat by the uh, mine owners that unless they received more government handouts that they would have to slash miners' wages. Um, you have, during this period of time, the growth of a, uh, a mass media, a more educated, um, this creates the possibility of a more educated electorate that could either make more informed choices or was the fear of um, the, uh, the government, um, uh, the aristocracy, uh, the newspaper magnets themselves, that 
um, demagogic um, populist or, or um, uh, socialist um, politics might br- cut through, break through, as they put it in modern parlance, um, and, and influence the, the population in ways in which uh, the British elites didn't really want. So, Daniel Tubman writes, Fears of social disintegration were misplaced. The experience of victory did not encourage a separation between servicemen and civilians. In the mainland UK, the war ennobled peace, not violence. Post-war cuts wrecked the hopes of homes fit for heroes, but wartime wage rises and the provision of a treasury-supported dole for the unemployed took the edge off the discontent. Income tax remained much higher than it had been before the conflict, allowing all governments to increase social spending slightly, even while sticking to contemporary orthodoxy that the budget must be balanced. Um, one of the uh, key things that's argued, as, as I've said before in this podcast, by um, Richard Overy, is that the two decades, the 20s and the 30s, were this a period of apocalyptic fears and anxieties. Uh, uh, interestingly, this is long before uh, the kind of like the nuclear age, but there was a, a kind of a sense of decline of um, the of, of not just Britain but Britain's empire and the civilization it purported to represent. Its best days having been behind it. Um, many of these um, fantasies and fears were unfounded. Some of them ultimately found their expression in the Second World War. But the reality of the situation was that um, there was a, a, an intellectual climate in the 20s and 30s where um, there, was, there were fears of what Bertrand Russell called creed wars, vast wars being fought on the base of belief and ideology, as indeed um, happened. And also a sense that barbarism would finally um, thwart civilization. Civilization, in the eyes of Britain's bourgeoisie, was the empire bringing some kind of light and magical um, enlightenment to the world. Um, the political system in Britain adapted to face the challenges that it uh, were thrown at it. Um, the political system, as I say this now, as we all know, is in profound uh, crisis and one which is difficult to see how it will emerge from. Uh, and part of the, um, the seeds of that crisis have been a belief that has been really worn into British thinking throughout the 20th century that... British uh, politics is endlessly pragmatic and will always uh, adapt and adjust and absorb shocks and take on board uh, any challenges and assimilate them and all that kind of thing. It did do that in the 1930s very, very successfully. Um, Less so now, it would appear. A series of three-way party fights between the Conservatives, Labour and the declining Liberal Party um, created small opportunities for the Labour Party, 1924-1929, to exercise minority government. Um, And from the second of those uh, was obviously destroyed by the the Great Depression. 
um, f- was replaced with a, the National Coalition, um, and uh, this shaped um, party politics all the way to the end of the Second World War. Um, and it brought a kind of stability to politics, the, um, well, it's one of the few periods of time where the creation of coalitions has brought about um, kind of a, a, a stability. Um, the 30s seemed um, actually strangely calmer than the 1920s. Uh, a number of uh, commentators, George Orwell uh, being uh, one of them, um, Arthur Greenwood um, and um, Dylan Thomas even um, later on, um, and um, Evelyn Waugh and W.H. Auden were all um, of the view that there was a, a kind of a, a, a strange um, and slightly almost kind of uh, imperceptible um, calm, a sort of like a suppression of um, emotions, a suppression of the, the kind of the wilder, angrier urges and instincts of man throughout the 1930s, at least in, in Britain. And it was as a result of um, partly Britain being able to um, not do well out of the Great Depression, but to avoid um, the worst of it. Britain's Great Depression lasts for about five years, whereas in America it's the best part of a, a decade. And there is a fairly robust recovery in Britain at the uh, end, uh, you know, by the end of, of the 1930s. Um, there was very little support during the period for the, either the Communist Party or the uh, British Union of Fascists. Um, and there was a, a widespread belief that one of the things that distinguished Britain, one of the, these, these, these kind of ideas of stability that we've um, fed to ourselves, was that um, our transition to a mass democracy um, had been one based on ideas of mutual respect, tolerance, moderation, and the fact that the, the Britain, um, and normally the term Englishman would have been used, takes the middle road, takes the, the kind of the road of, of common sense and compromise. And that this is part of the kind of the, the view of Britain that is, is, is often propagated, that this is the sort of country that um, steers that kind of sensible middle course. Um, and that sensible middle course, if it existed at all in the 1930s, it only existed because of specific economic, social and political factors that created it. It's, there's nothing innate about any country in the world um, that suggests that they are predestined towards stability. These things uh, em- emerge from historical circumstances. They don't sort of magically pop out of the ground like leprechauns. Um, the... Stability um, also comes from the fact that Britain was more united than it had been previously. Um, In the run-up to the First World War, um, the question of home rule had brought about um, almost a a state of civil war in um, Ireland, which would quite possibly have engulfed uh, parts of the mainland Britain as well. 
Um, and the creation of the Irish Free State with, and the creation of Northern Ireland, dominated by the Unionists uh, and its own devolved parliament, um, sort of killed these um, passions for a generation. Um, the uh, obviously the the Irish Republican Army, which sought to refu- um, reunify a whole independent island, um, was um, really kind of by the late nineteen thirties um, defeated on both sides of the Irish Sea. There were fairly small nationalist uh, movements in Scotland uh, and Wales uh, before the Second World War, and they wouldn't really emerge until, again, until the 1960s and in, in um, Wales and 1970s in uh, Scotland. Um, but these were really kind of fringe organisations because mass party politics, conservatism, the Labour Party and the Liberal Party in Scotland and Wales, at that point, to the working and middle classes, made sense. One of the uh, reasons, one of the key reasons in Scotland particularly for the decline of both the Conservative and the Labour parties um, and the rise of the Scottish Nationalist Party is because neither the Labour Party nor the Conservative Party uh, have been for a considerable amount of time able to create a, a meaningful um, political, a social offer to Scotland that seems to cut through en masse in a way that the Scottish Nationalist Party is capable of doing. Uh, but the, in a period of time in the 1930s that we're talking about, both those parties were able to do exactly that because at that point in time, class politics and class identity Um, uh, was far more powerful, far more um, uh, prevalent in the lives of English, Irish, Scottish and Welsh people in the United Kingdom uh, than national politics were. After a war like the First World War, where um, Scots, Irish, Welsh and English people, um, along with Commonwealth troops and Empire troops, had stood in the trenches and fought for um, the flag and fought for King George, um, they had, there was a, a kind of a, a far deeper and I guess perhaps artificial um, sense of uh, national allegiance and identity that Scots people may grumble about the English and vice versa, but both of them had fought for uh, king and country and that was the end of it. Now, in his book, uh, The Long Shadow, by um, David Reynolds, um, he makes the argument, and I think it's a convincing one, that two world wars had given uh, Great Britain, um, or uh, the United Kingdom, uh, an unnaturally long um, lifespan, a sort of like a stay of execution Uh, if you will, that um, the fear of powerful external enemies and a sense of uh, all the nations of the islands uh, pulling together in in common struggle. Um, And perhaps the Cold War has also kind of done done this too, um, had created a kind of a 
a cohesiveness that ordinarily, under the kind of the various pressures of uh, modernity, would not be there. And as we reach the point in history that we are currently at, where the breakup of the United Kingdom is a very real possibility, um, perhaps there is quite a lot uh, in that argument that, that is valid. Anyway, we're going to we keep returning to looking at Britain on the yeah, eve of the Second World War uh, because the 1930s are this fascinating decade of all sorts of transitions and conflicts and changes. Um, but I do hope you found this interesting and useful and um, we are going to be developing our Patreon page uh, a little bit in the not-too-distant future to make sure that uh, patrons get um, additional material and some video blogs from me and some other cool stuff that I, I hope you'll enjoy. So do check it out, and if you can help from the podcast, we'll be most grateful. All the best. Thank you very much. Bye-bye. Hey, it's Paige DeSorbo from Giggly Squad. High-quality fashion without the price tag. Say hello to Quince. I'm snagging high-end essentials like cozy cashmere sweaters, sleek leather jackets, fine jewelry, and so much more. With Quince being 50 to 80% less than similar brands. And they partner with factories that prioritize safe, ethical, and responsible manufacturing. I love that. Luxury quality within reach. Go to quince.com slash style to get free shipping and 365 day returns on your next order. Quince.com slash style. Save big money when you start your next project today at Menards. Convert your current recessed lighting with energy-saving LED downlights from Fight Electric. They're bright and install easily in just minutes. They also go from regular lighting to nightlight mode with just a simple flip of a switch. Save big on all Fight lighting products now at Menards. Shop our lighting options today in-store and on Menards.com. Save big.